religion, oh, that word, religion, it is such a powerful thing, such a powerful thing. And because religion is so powerful, religion can also be very dangerous. Uh, the thing that makes religion so powerful is that it's anchored to our conscience, to our, our moral sense of right and wrong. And that's actually what it is that drives our behavior. And the scary thing is that our conscience can actually be connected to truth, but our conscience can also be connected to error and to lies. See, our conscience determines, our, our conscience, our moral sense of right and wrong determines religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. See, our consciousness is what determines what's religious for us, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We experience what we experience as religion, whether it actually reflects spiritual reality, Jesus-like stuff, biblical truth or not. Now, we've all experienced this, right? We've all struggled with this. Have you ever had anybody um, come up to you and say, hey, you shouldn't feel that way? Works great in marriage, right? Just try that phrase sometime. Or, or how about this one? You shouldn't feel guilty about that. You don't need to feel guilty about that. And when people say that to you, that you shouldn't feel guilty about something, does that do away with your guilt? Absolutely not. Does nothing. You still feel guilty. Why? Because your conscience, your sense of right or wrong has been fine-tuned, fine-tuned to a certain set of values. In fact, there'll be times you'll be with friends and, and they'll do something that bothers you, like really bothers you, but it doesn't seem to bother them at all. But they're friends. You, you know they're good people and you're good people, but it doesn't bother them. And then you do things that bothers other people. Why is that? Why is that? Because our, our consciences are fine-tuned to a set of values that then drives behavior. And that's often what we call religion. I grew up Baptist. A little town, little country town in California. I grew up Baptist. Had lots of Catholic friends. Lots of Catholic friends. And I just did not understand some of the hoops they had to jump through. I, we'd be sitting around after football practice or whatever. And they're telling me, how, yeah, Sunday, man, I got to go to confession. And I'm like, what? You have to go to confession? Like, just tell God you're sorry and move on. What's, why do you got to go sit in a booth? And, and they're like, no, no, you got to go to confession. And they're like, you don't go to confession? I go, no. And they go, oh, man, you're in trouble. And I'm like, I go back home. Am I in trouble? We don't do confession. Am I in trouble? See, it's their conscience that's driving this. Now, I couldn't imagine having to go to confession. Meanwhile, Baptists, the church that I grew up, we Baptists, we Baptists, there's no way we drank, not alcohol, zero, no alcohol whatsoever, zero, like none. And I would tell them, they're going out to a party after the game. Even to come, I go, I can't drink, I don't drink. And they're like, why? Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know why. So I asked my parents, why, do, why don't Baptists drink? And they said, well, because drinking leads to dancing. <laughs> you don't want to see Baptists dance. That's just, that's, like, there's a line. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why we're not. You're just not supposed to, I would tell them. You're just not supposed to. See, the way you're raised and the way religion is presented to you, it fine-tunes your idea of right and wrong. It fine-tunes your conscience. And that's why the next couple weeks, next Sunday, week after that, might be a little bit difficult for some of us. You don't want to miss the next two weeks. As a reminder, if you're married, you want to sit in the front row. If you're dating, you want to sit in the second row. If you want to date, you're going to stand right up here with me. Okay? 
next two weeks because it's going to be a little bit difficult. See, all of our consciences have been fine-tuned to, to the way we feel towards God, to the way we feel towards sin, uh, for the way we feel towards other people, towards one another. Because essentially, whatever we've been taught, whatever controls your conscience actually controls our behavior. So what we're going to do in this series, what we're doing today, is going to tease out, kind of separate out the movement that Jesus began from all this other stuff that we've been referring to as the temple system. Now, remember the temple system? Temple system is all about sacred places. When you look up all the way through history, and even alive today now, there's always sacred places. You have to go to church, right? You have to go to temple. There's always sacred texts, oracles, inscriptions, documents, religious texts, and then there's always sacred men, and it's always sacred men. And, and then those men take those sacred texts in those sacred places and they present to sincere followers or superstitious followers or uh, scared followers or scarred followers. But there's a group of people that are dependent on the words and the teachings of this certain sacred group of men to understand where they stand with God. And these men, these men, they stand at the gates of heaven and hell, and they determine who goes there. And our consciences are fine-tuned to that teaching. And that's why so many people give up on religion. And they should, because they're not stupid. And they see right through the scam, and, and consequently, they have nothing to do with it. And unfortunately, it means often they have nothing to do with Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus showed up. And when he showed up, he launched something completely, absolutely, entirely new. It wasn't Temple 2.0. It wasn't Temple 3.0. It wasn't a knockoff of the Jewish religion. Uh, Jesus says, I have come to do something completely new, entirely new, where the, the temple model was based on geography. Every nation had its own version of the temple. Every nation had its own version of religion that was really kind of a steal of the neighbor's religion and kind of tweaked and twerked a little bit. And Jesus says, I've come to launch something that's totally new for all people of all nations. And he came and he established a new covenant. A new arrangement between God and people. He established a new command, and he said every temple system has lots and lots and lots and lots of rules. Some written down, some unspoken, some inferred. I'll give you one. And this command is going to be the one you filter every single other command through. This is the one command that will serve as an ethic. It's a new ethic on, on how you make all your decisions. And when you're not sure what to do, all you got to do is ask, what does love require of me? When you're not sure what to do, stop, pause, take a breath, and ask, what does love require of me in this situation? And he launched a new movement. He goes, I'm going to establish a new ecclesia, a, a new gathering, a new congregation, a, a, a new way of being together that unfortunately got translated wrongly and used a German word that meant house of God, church, and got put down in our English Bibles. Jesus didn't come to establish another place. He can, came to establish a new way, a new way of relating a new movement of people that was for all people, all ethnic groups, all nations, all generations, forever and ever and ever. A movement where love would replace law-keeping, where self-sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice, where the, the vertical would be measured by how we are horizontally 
the integrity of our horizontal loving relationships with one another. And he would say to his followers, look, if you're at the temple and you have something wrong between you and God, uh, sorry, you have something wrong between you and God, but you recognize that you have something wrong between you and, and another, uh, another brother, another sister, God can wait. Leave the temple. Go make things right between yourselves. Now come back and worship me together. It was unheard of. What? Do What? Seriously? You make me What? It was brand new. Apostle Paul came along after Jesus. He was, the, he was the Pharisee of all Pharisees, right? And he came in, and his job was to wipe out this Jesus movement. He was going to totally wipe it out. And during that process, he meets Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And he becomes a Christian. He converts his way to the way of following Jesus. He becomes a spokesperson for Christianity. And he, more than anybody else, because he knows all the Old Testament law. He knows all the Torah. He knows you do not dare mix the old with the new. Because a little bit of temple thing can mess up the whole Jesus movement completely. It has the potential to ruin it, absolutely. A little bit of the wrong can impact the entire good thing. That is just also right. So he writes letters to churches, and he writes this. He writes this verse that we camped out on last week. He says, the only thing that counts is faith. Faith expressing itself through love, specifically love towards each other, love towards other people. This was brand new thinking brand new way of life. But he didn't stop there. He wrote letters to a group of people in Corinth. They were both Jewish and they were both Gentile. And, and the Jewish people in Corinth believed that every once in a while they had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They had to go to uh, the temple on the mount in order to worship God there properly, to do that right. The pagan Gentiles who were learning what it means to love Jesus and to be a Christian, they would then simply just kind of go up the street to their everyday local neighborhood pagan temple and their pagan gods and try to figure out how do you how do you trust jesus in the midst of the fact that we worship these pagan gods and how does it all kind of work together and to that group paul wrote this he had the audacity the audacity to write this he says do you not know that your bodies are temples see temple's not a place People said, Paul said, that's the old way of thinking. He's done, Jesus has come and done something entirely new. You are as sacred as any piece of dirt that you've ever placed your foot on. You will never, ever go anywhere that is more sacred than you are, or the person to your left, or the person to your right. And if you're dating or you're married, you don't want to miss the next two weeks. That changes everything. I'm just saying. Just saying. Paul says, you're a portable temple. And they're like, what? How can I be a portable temple? How, do, how does that work? And he goes on to write, and he says this. He says, because the Holy Spirit, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Which the Jews would have said, wait, wait, what? what? No, it, the, the Spirit of God does not reside in us. The Spirit of God resides in the Holy of Holies. And Paul said, that's the old way. Jesus came. New covenant was made. The holy of holies, it's done its job. It has no significance anymore. It's played its role. It was kind of the cocoon and that birthed this brand new movement. You are now the holy of holies. You are the porta temple and you are indwelt by the very same spirit of God that indwelt the temple of Jerusalem. And the Christian on your left and the Christian on your right, the slave on your left, the slave on your right, 
the man in front of you, the woman behind you, the child running up to you, they are all are sacred in the eyes of God. Have I mentioned you don't want to miss the next two weeks? This was mind-boggling. This was really brand new. Nothing about the old moving into the new. And the church got off to this extraordinary start. It just exploded. Ancient literature, when you read ancient literature of pagan people and how they wrote about Christians back then, it is eye-opening. They would watch Christians, and they just couldn't understand why Christians rolled the way they rolled. They said they would actually go out into the streets, and they would take in the children on the streets that had been abandoned. Because back then, in the Roman culture, if a child wasn't healthy, if the child was a girl, uh, if, if the child was abandoned, they were abandoned all the time. Kids left in the streets all the time. And Christians would go in, and they would bring those children in. Christians would not only take care of their own poor they would take care of the poor Gentiles and the poor pagans as well. And that Roman culture went, what? Who are these people? They're so easy to con. I can go in, get a free meal, get some free food, walk away, go work out the next one, come back, get some more. And they're like, God bless you. What is wrong with them? And the pagan uh, Greek thinking just couldn't keep it. They couldn't contain it. They couldn't contain the thought. They couldn't imagine that people would actually one another one another. Couldn't believe that people would actually love one another, would actually care for one another, would actually forgive one another. But the thing that really got the world's attention is that Christians were then did it, but they weren't afraid to die. They weren't afraid of dying when they did it because they served a resurrected Savior. And as the Christian community began to gain traction, and they had no Bible, they didn't even have the Old Testament. All they had were stories, stories of Jesus. And then about 25 years or so after Jesus resurrected, Paul started sending letters out, circulating between these little different house gatherings and these little churches. And they only had copies of copies of copies. And, and they had some of this one and some of that one. There's no literature. There's no canon. There's no bounded Bible book. There was no flat screens to look it up. There was just this extraordinary faith fueled by this idea that God loved us so much that we'll love him and we will love everybody else. And if you forget anything else, you are a portable temple gathered with other portable temples and you put the person next to you ahead of yourself and the church gained traction. And then something extraordinary happened. And around 70 AD, the Jewish temple was actually destroyed. And ancient Judaism came to an end. Its purposes had been served. They pointed to the Messiah back then. They pointed towards what they didn't realize was Jesus. And Jesus showed up. And then Jesus himself said, I have not come to abolish the law, abolish what was being taught in the temple. I've come to fulfill it. And the entire law can be summed up in two rules. Love God and demonstrate your love for God by the way you love each other. It was extraordinary. And people who had nothing in common found in Christ that they had everything in common. And then something else extraordinary happened. October 28th, the year was 312. Emperor Constantine, on his way to do battle, against the co-emperor uh, Maxentius 
to find out who would be the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. Well, the story goes, history says, that um, tells us that on his way, in the middle of the day, he had a vision. On his way to this battle, a vision of a cross in the sky beyond the sun. Some people say he heard a voice. Uh, some say that he saw an inscription, an inscription. If you Google it now, there's a lot of people who say he saw a UFO. Anyway, but he heard this, or he saw this, or, or he, he thought this. And this is what came to mind. In this sign, conquer. And he stopped. And he took that sign, that cross. And he painted crosses on the shields of his of his. Of his of his soldiers, my goodness, Sally sells, she sells by the seashore, and, and he went into battle with crosses on the shields, and he was victorious, and as the Christians hailed him as a conqueror, suddenly his faith expanded, I like these Christians, and suddenly he began to consider the one true and only God of the Christians, and suddenly Christians began to gain status in the kingdom. And in this victory, the cross became a symbol, not just of crucifixion in general, the cross became a symbol of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And what was birthed then, even though the phrase didn't come up till about 12th to 13th century, the new phrase that began from this was the Holy Roman Empire. The problem, of course, it was a whole lot more Roman and a whole lot more empire-ish than it was holy. Later on, Constantine legalized Christianity. And when he did, he poured so much money into the church. He elevated the status of bishops and priests. And he began to build churches anywhere that he heard that a martyr might have died there. And he would build a church. Suddenly, he was a collector of, of relics, Christian relics. Everything he did was about elevating Christianity. He built churches, and churches didn't have to pay taxes. So guess what? Rich people started calling their property in their mansions churches. And their houses, they dedicated them to God so they didn't have to pay taxes. And the rich got richer, and rich people became Christians because it kind of paid off pretty well to follow Jesus under the leadership of Constantine. But also, at the same time, Constantine, he banned crucifixion. He gave rights to children. He actually donated money to families. He would take in orphans and children. And almost overnight, Christianity changed. And it went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. The problem with that, though, and it wasn't on purpose. It, was, it wasn't the plan. The problem was that suddenly Christianity could not be separated from the empire. And church leaders started to create their own version of a different kind of temple model with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in there. A little salt, a little light, you know, just a little bit. And there would be new sacred places. And there would be a whole new group of sacred people who began to intentionally collect all the Christian texts, bind them together in a book, and then chain it to the altar. And now they would determine what was taught and what wasn't taught and how that text, that biblical text, would be interpreted. Which led to a thing called the Arian Controversy. It was a theological controversy. I'm only going to bring it up because I want to highlight how it affects us even today, 2023. The Arian controversy was all around this word called begotten. 
It was over the question, did Jesus become God after he was born, or was he born God? Not your typical dinner conversation, was it? But it was a big deal back then, really big deal. A church leader from Alexandria named Arius believed that Jesus' divinity was kind of gifted to him, conferred on him as an adult, as kind of like a reward for his faithfulness to God. But most church leaders, especially a person by the name of Anathasius, who led the charge against Arius, believed that, no, 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 no. Jesus was always divine. He was born divine. Now, Constantine's got this good thing going on, right? This Christian empire. He doesn't need this kind of conflict and division going on in his, in, in his empire. So he calls a council meeting and he hosts the meeting and he brings in the best caterers and he pays for all of it himself, which means everyone's going to be nice to him and kind and polite to the emperor. And so there's this debate. And as a result of the debate, the Nicene Creed was written. But after the debate... People didn't go away going, oh, man, good feed, good conversation. We're all friends here. Let's move on. Nah, there's no friends. There's no like, okay, you believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. We'll be all right. Nah, this was divisive. This was a political issue. This was a financial issue. This was a big deal. So the Emperor Constantine, again, who's no theologian. He's not a priest or a pastor or anything. He's, a, he's, a, he's an emperor. He puts out an edict against the Arians, and he writes this. He says, and I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have it immediately brought forward and destroyed by fire, his penalty shall be death. And now, theological differences, theological divisions were now heresy and were punishable by death. Suddenly, believing the wrong thing was a crime. And then all of a sudden in Christianity, what you believed trumped how you behaved. I use the word trumped on purpose just to irritate some of you. <laughs> Christianity immediately became creedal. Creedal. You might have heard of things like the Apostles' Creed, extraordinary piece of theology, states so many things that are so important to Christendom, but the problem with that creed, and all creeds for that matter, there's no mention of love, not in any of the creeds, no mention of behavior, no applied theology at all. You can subscribe to a creed, and basically, you can still do whatever you want, you can know you're going to heaven and live like hell and no one's going to care. Why? Because creeds were genuinely signed off by the emperor. And most emperors had a lot of bad behavior. So church leaders who were being funded by the emperors had to be really, really careful about what they put into these Christian creeds. And ever since then, no one has ever been persecuted. No one has ever been executed because they loved too much. It was always about what they did and didn't believe. And now we have Christians arresting Christians for believing 
the wrong thing. We have a Christian version of the temple system. A new group of sacred men now become the gatekeepers of heaven and hell. And they can withhold communion. And they can withhold baptism. And they can threaten you with excommunication. And now suddenly the pope and the priests and the bishops and the archbishops were, were all about power. And the kings and the lords and the landowners, they feared the pope and the priests and the bishops. See, the temple system was back, stronger than ever. It was just like a Christian version now. Sacred places, sacred men that controlled sacred texts. Because no one had access to the Bible. And it would be only interpreted the way they thought it should be interpreted. And following Jesus, this movement that's supposed to be fueled by loving God and loving one another, fueled by one anothering one another almost came to a screeching halt. Except there was a few monastic movements, some remnants of people who understood the Jesus movement, kept living and keeping it alive. And then there's the next big date. We're going to jump up, 1517, which marked the beginning of the Reformation, Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, all those guys, they weren't trying to abandon the church. They were trying to reform the church, hence the word Reformation. There were those inside the church that were protesting against what the church had become, hence the word Protestant. And so Martin Luther uh, condemned things like selling of indulgences. Martin Luther, who was a Greek scholar, uh, said that none of the things that the church was currently doing and standing for, none of it's in the Bible. None of it's found in the Gospels. Certain, their, their version of salvation is not in the Gospels. The idea that a pope or archbishop or a bishop can control who goes to purgatory and, and, and how long they stay there, none of that's in the Bible. None of that's in the Gospels. And so they began to reform the church. And consequently, as you know, Martin Luther was excommunicated, which Martin Luther said, so what? I don't care. You don't have the power to excommunicate me from the church. So within the context of Reformation, there became these statements, solas. All these solas came to light. The most popular one was sola fida, which means by faith alone. It became the hallmark of Protestants. That we believe that salvation is not by works but by faith alone. You don't earn salvation. It's a gift. It's the grace of God. So Martin Luther began to teach others. The printing press was created. Now all of a sudden, scriptures are being translated into English. When William Tyndall, remember a few weeks back, he got killed for making texts available uh, to all the people in his part of the world. Martin Luther began to translate the Bible into Germany for his part of the world, and he became a criminal for making the Bible available for everybody. The other solo that came up was the Reformation gave us sola scriptura, which means um, scripture, not the church. The ultimate authority for humankind is scripture, not the church. It's what God has said in Bible. That's why it was so adamant. It was so dangerous to make copies of scripture and get them to the hands of people. Because that's a threat to the power base. That's a threat to the church. Suddenly, if everybody had scripture, then no one would take the church and the traditions of the church seriously. They would lose all their power. Well, Martin Luther says this in the midst of this. He says, a simple layman armed, armed with scripture, is greater than the mightiest pope without it. And without meaning to, wasn't the big plan, didn't do this on purpose, now, understanding where this might go, suddenly in the hands of the reformers, suddenly in the hands of the Protestant church leaders, Scripture, the Bible, became the very same thing 
that the Pope and papal authority was before. And the Bible, armed with Scripture, became a weapon. Reformers were armed with Scripture. And they did exactly what the church had done before. And the Reformation splintered into three, six, a dozen, dozens, thousand different Protestant denominations all over the world. And, and you know what divided them? It wasn't because some loved better than others. It wasn't because some loved differently than others. Nah. What divided them was their interpretation of Scripture. Because now you had more sacred spaces and you had more sacred men telling everybody else how to live their lives and specifically what would grant them entrance into heaven and what would keep them out of hell. And Protestants have been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. And if you're about to Google our Baptist Protestants, let me save you some time. We are. We are. And the tragedy of all this even though if we lived back then, in that context, we probably would have been caught up with the same thinking, the same conflict, the same division. But at the end of the day, the only thing that lost was love. Love lost. And we just simply ended up with another version of the temple system. A little bit of Jesus sprinkled in there. Now, we just went through hundreds and hundreds of years of church history. Now, this next bit, I'm making up, totally making up. So don't Google what I'm about to say because you won't find that. Can you imagine what Jesus was thinking during this? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul during this time standing at the railing of heaven out on the balcony of, of heaven with their LMP? <laughs> looking down and Paul going, can't you turn this into wine? No, I want LMP today. And looking down, and Jesus turning to Paul and saying, I could not have been any clearer. Honestly, I got them all together right at the end. I was washing their stinking feet. And I looked at them, and I told them, this is an example. This is what you are to do for one another. Okay, you got it, guys? And then I looked at them right in the eye, and I said, I have loved you, so you should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I can imagine I'm looking at Paul and going, how did, it, how did it come to this? How did this happen? And the apostle Paul would say, look, you know what, Jesus, no offense. I actually wrote mine down. I wrote it down. I sent it out. I had copies made. And, and, and you know what I told him? I made it real simple. I took what you said, I made it real straight, real clear, real simple. And I just said this. I just said, look, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. I don't know how to make it any more simple. And I could just imagine about them, uh, Peter walking up. Apostle, uh, disciple Peter walking up. And he says, look, Jesus, <laughs> I've been watching too. I'm so embarrassed. I mean, Master, they gave you a little garden tomb. Have you seen what they built over the place where I was buried? Have you seen it? They built a temple. Can you believe it? A temple over my burial site. And Jesus, I wrote it down too. I was so passionate. I tried to get it across. And I wrote, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply, deeply from the heart. So I, how did this happen? 
How, does that, how can something so clear become so complicated, so power-driven, so divisive? How could the new movement of Jesus with a new command and a new ethic of love that was to serve as a filter for everyone's decisions, how could something so pure, so grassroots, so one another oriented become so temple? It's because we all have a little temple inside of us. We all have this kind of power-based temple system inside all of us. Our consciences have been shaped by it. What you fear, what you see as sin, what you think God condemns has been taught to you in such a way and to me growing up in such a way that our, our consciences have been shaped by it. And consequently, we continue to hold on to things that hold us back. Have you ever wondered, how close to sin can I get without actually sinning? Without actually sinning. How, how close to the line can I get before I cross it? That's how temple system people think. What we do is we think that way and we treat God like he's stupid. It's like, God, look, I want to know exactly what sin is because I'm not actually trying to get close to you. I'm, I'm trying to get close to sin, but I, I, I want to do it in a way that doesn't tick you off. So, God, I need to know exactly where, where's the line. I get asked this all the time. Pastors get asked this all the time. Um, do you think such and such is a sin? Meaning, look, I like to do such and such, and I don't want to sin, but I want to know exactly where the line is. How close to sin can I get without ticking God off? How close to sin can I get without having to pay for it? And if you ever thought that, it's temple living. If you've ever lost, sorry, if you've ever been so worked up about something you don't like, you don't like that decision by that person. You don't like the lifestyle choice by that person. And after heated arguments and raised voices and, and accusations and sent to all emails, you finally just give up and walk away from them and you leave. If you've ever lost more sleep over a decision you disagree with than by how you treated the person you, that was so different from you, if your thinking of those things takes precedent over how you treat other people? It's temple thinking. Or, look, if you've ever feared the eternal destiny of your child based on whether or not your child was baptized, it's temple thinking. Someone convinced you that putting water on your kid's head, maybe water on your own head, would determine where you spend eternity. I understand that as parents, we all deal with fear about our kids. No one loves anyone like we love our kids. But someone has taught you to do this. Temple thinking. There's another one. When you have failed morally, whatever that is, Maybe you had an affair. Maybe you had several affairs. Maybe for you, you're not married, and it's before you were married. But you define morality any way you want. This is not a moral sermon day about morality. But you define morality any way you want. And that time in your life when you based your own conscience, your own sense of ethics, your own sense of right and wrong, 
And in that time, you failed morally with someone. Here's the question. Were you more concerned about what God would do to you than you were about what you did to the person you sinned with? Because if you were, it's temple thinking. Because in the temple system, the worshiper is always more concerned about myself than about other people. And it affects attitudes, treatment, what you like, what you don't like, how you pick a church. Fix all that. Here's another one. Do other people's sins elicit a sense of superiority in you instead of compassion? Do other people's failures make you feel better about yourself? And you're like, well, you know, those people. Well, you know, like, those, well, those are act party supporters, you know, that's the way they are. Or those are green voters, and, well, you know, they are who they are. You know, well, they're liberal, or they're conservative, or they're Presbyterian, or they're Catholic, or, well, you know, they're Baptists, you know, Baptists are. Well, they're pagans, and that's what pagans, well, you know, young people today, you know, they're whatevers. Is there ever a moment in time when someone else's failings, someone else's sins, someone else's social media posts, someone else's, however you define sin, and you see them cross that line, makes you feel morally superior, instead of breaking your heart, that is temple thinking pollution. It's that little bit of wrong thing that has come in and has the potential to corrupt the entire good thing. Do your beliefs and your theology ever get in the way of your ability to love each other? If so, that's temple. Do you have views that get in the way of loving the actual person that's sitting behind you, in front of you, next to you, each side? That's temple thinking. And it's in all of us. It's in all of us. Our consciences are bound to it. Imagine if we were free from it. Can you imagine what might happen if we released that and got rid of that? Imagine a world where every single Christian, every single person who believes in Jesus Christ, got up every single day and recognized God is okay with me. And I'm okay with God. I got to figure out how to go be okay with everybody else. So they can be okay with God in heaven as well. Because I think what fuels this temple thing inside us is our failure to embrace the gospel. It's the gospel. That's good news. See, the gospel is that Jesus is the the Christ, the Son of God, and he came to die for you and is for you. And as much as that's a theological category, as much as that maybe you prayed that prayer when you were a child and Jesus come into my heart and here's what happens, the idea that Jesus died for you and you get that inside you, you begin to realize that Jesus is actually for you because if someone's going to die for you, they are absolutely for you. And once you understand that Jesus and his father are unequivocally your fans, in your corner, for you, cheering you on, love you, want to serve you, that there is no measure, there is no sin that makes you be outside of their love, that grace has no measure, no limits. Grace, they took the roof off grace. Once you settle into that 
and you get your heart around that, that becomes the context. That becomes the filter that the love God has for you and the love God has for other people becomes the context in how you understand everything, including the Bible. It becomes a context in which we interpret the Old and the New Testament. It goes right back to what Jesus said when he says, look, it's really simple. You love God, and you demonstrate your love for God by the way you love each other. Really simple. And when you're not sure what to do, you stop. You pause, and you ask, what does love require? Right now, what does love require? When you know, don't know how to handle a situation, you just stop. And you go, what does love require of me and all the people involved. Because Jesus said this, and the Apostle Paul said this, that the entire law lands on loving God and loving your neighbor. The entire law. And for us, and towards those around us, that informs how we behave. That informs how we welcome. That informs how we celebrate. That informs who we invite to the table. And when that happened, and as that happened, then, and not until then, they will know you are Christians by your love, by your love. Yes, they'll know you are Christians by your love. Don't miss next week. Our mission, our goal, the reason we're doing this series is to strip away that temple-like thinking from all of us. And once again, engage on this brand new way of life, a totally different way of approaching life, that in this context of this new covenant, your sin is paid for. You don't have to earn anything. There is no shame. There's nothing to hold you back except the forgiveness of God. Turn around, and as you mirror that forgiveness to others, watch what happens. Don't miss next week. Let's pray. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for sending us your son, for giving us life-giving words in scripture that at the end of the day, we just love an invisible God so we can love the visible people around us. God, help us as a church to be a group of people that pass it on from generation to generation to generation. I pray that we become the generation that gets it righter, if not completely right. That our kids and our grandkids would see in us a form of Christianity, a form of church, a form of following Jesus that incorporates and embraces this newness of loving God and loving each other. And that little by little, each of us individually and then us as a corporate group of friends and family would leave behind a legacy that, Jesus, you left behind so long ago. God, I pray that in your name, we would never, ever, ever hurt anybody else, regardless of what they have done or what they believe or what they are doing or what we think they believe. Give us wisdom to know how to walk alongside people, how to love people right where they are, and then give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.